Hello, and welcome to the League of Josh podcast. My name is Joshua, and I'm your host. This episode was recorded on June 14th, 2021. In today's episode, I have with me Danielle Comrie. Danielle is currently doing her research on grit. We discuss what grit actually is, the measures that seem to encompass it, and why she believes that this research is important under the guise of sport. We discuss mindfulness, what makes an optimal training versus competing environment, how we perceive stress in sport, and how we learn. Honestly, Danielle is a delightful human being and a whirlwind of intelligence. I know that you guys are going to love this. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm fortunate enough to be joined by Danielle Cormier. Danielle is a third-year PhD candidate in the College of Kinesiology at the University of Saskatchewan. She's originally from Edmonton, Alberta, where she completed her master's degree at the U of A. Her research is focused on the intersection of grit and self-compassion in high-performance athletes and is also interested in the process of self-regulation as well as perfectionism and mindfulness in sport. She's extremely passionate about encouraging athletes to build on their character strengths rather than focusing on their weakness in sports settings. Currently, she works at a, as a sport performance consultant for a wide variety of teams and individual sports teams and works with athletes competing at the developmental level all the way up to the U-sport varsity level. So, Danielle, thank you very much for coming on and speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Josh. I'm looking forward to speaking with someone out of my immediate bubble. <laughs> Perfect. It's, uh, yeah, that's a, a little bit more difficult to do nowadays. So. For sure. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, I find it normally good to start off by giving a little bit of background into who you are, how you came into being who you currently are from who you were, and what your process was with school, and how you came to starting on a research project, including GRIT. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, I was one of those really strange kids that knew that I wanted to study sports psychology when I was about 14 years old. Um, so the research topic of GRIT is more me-search, I would say, than research. Um, but when I was 14-ish, uh, I believe there was the Winter Olympics going on. So we were watching that um, all around the TV at home. So I, there was just a little bit of an undertone. Someone is, some sort of interview was happening that was talking about sports psychology. Um, so I got really interested in that uh, idea because when I played sports, I, kind of my, um, I would keep butting up against instances because I was a big team sport athlete where one girl would step onto the court and was having a very bad day and that negative energy, that that suck would spread into the rest of the team and then we'd just have a big blowout disaster. So I thought that was always really, really interesting how that mental side could really permeate not just one person, but the rest of, rest of the team. And then as well, my best friend, uh, who is right now living in Denver, Colorado, she was a uh, very high level skier um, to the point she was always on the road, always traveling, always competing. Uh, I think up until I was about 14 years old, she had never made a single one of my birthday parties because that was in March, so just towards the end of the ski season. Um, she, the previous year, had fallen uh, during a run and had broken one of her legs. And then that year uh, had fallen and broken bones in one leg and then tore three of her four ligaments in her other leg. So that uh, was a heartbreaking end to her very, very promising career. Um, and so I spent a couple months pushing her around in the halls of our high school uh, in a wheelchair 
and kind of listening and speaking with her, like sitting up all night in her bedroom again with her like big cryo packs on both legs, um, just talking about how it felt to have that chapter in her life close without um, her wanting that, um, a lot of resistance there. So just very interested too in helping athletes and learning and speaking with athletes who have experienced a career ending injury and helping them move forward from that as well. Uh, so yeah, from 14 on, sports psychology it was. <laughs> and so, so you knew, I, I looked at your academic history and it was pretty consistent all the way through psychology and political science and then going into your master's again, psychology and sport. And then now your master's being psychology in sport with a research focus on grit. And what is grit? I'm, I'm a little bit more familiar with uh, Eisnick big five personality traits. That's something that I prescribe to a little bit more. So I'm curious Absolutely. as to what grit is. Yeah. So grit is as defined by kind of, I call her the mother of grit. Her name is uh, Dr. Angela Duckworth out of the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, she's the one that um, I suppose founded, put a, put a name on grit, created this, the instrument, created the, the grit questionnaire. Uh, so grit, uh, as defined by Angela, is passion and perseverance over long terms. And grit, I think something, especially in the sport world, is a word that's been bounced around a lot. And maybe not a lot of athletes or coaches have a very firm and consistent definition to the term. But for me in my Avery Tower, grit is passion perseverance over long terms, meaning that you're striving towards a singular goal, not over weeks or months, but over years and decades. And you're really, really stubborn about achieving that goal. Very cool. That sounds like a, a good definition for something and yeah. something and that's you, valuable to have. Yeah. And for you that the, with the big five grit is most similar to the point where a lot of academics are wondering, is grit just the, the new label of the old wine that is conscientiousness. So there's right. a lot of overlap between grit and conscientiousness. I was, I was thinking that as you described it, it sounds to, it sounds a lot like conscientiousness. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, right. Conscientiousness for anyone listening is the personality trait for just as you described it. It's something that being able to work hard at something or work long hours towards something. And so conscientiousness is the second greatest determinant for lifelong success in people. And mm -hmm. it sounds like grit is also quite high up there. So it's interesting that there's a intersectionality between those two. Yeah, absolutely. I think with Angela's research and with research in the field coming out, we keep finding that grit is a better determinant of success than more traditional markers. So like, mm -hmm. let's say IQ. Uh, so a score on an IQ test isn't necessarily a better predictor of success in the long term than grit. Um, so it's really neat. It's a really neat way of thinking, particularly in sports, in that you don't have to be the best at something in order to be very, very successful at something. Because at the end of the day, say on a team of athletes, you have like your MVP, your all-star athlete, uh, but one year they decide that this sport isn't for them or that they'd rather go take a year off to go travel um, and they just aren't as sharp anymore. If you're the person at the end of it all still hanging on and still training and still having that consistency, you can be the one that's successful. You don't have to be the strongest, the fastest, et cetera, et cetera you have to be the most determined. Yeah, there was, a, there was a study a while ago that was interesting that compared conscientiousness and success towards 
conscientiousness and IQ in success. And it was, it was looking at a, an, an Asian population more specifically because the, particularly the, the, the Chinese culture is more geared toward hard work and conscientiousness. And so they were able to perform as well as people that had a 15 IQ bump on them, which is unbelievably significant. It's a standard deviation. So being able to, to make up for that just with hard work is unbelievably impressive. And Absolutely. Yep. And I think liberating too, because I think it's a lot of pressure. Again, in a room of a thousand people, there's only one person that's the best. So I think it's very liberating to know that you can make up for that deficit in talent um, with, again, that determination with that hard work. Mm -hmm. I'm reading a, a book called Mastery right now by Robert Greene, and he talks about the overall development of people from that perspective of some people are initially very successful. I think it, the, the greatest composers of music in our time and all time before their greatest pieces came out after 10 years of them composing. So mm -hmm. it's the people that stick around for the longest amount of time and work the hardest at it that tend to be the most successful, which is yeah, part and parcel for grit. So very interesting. How did, how did you come into the scope of grit? Did you have a eureka moment where you found a book in a library? I, I can imagine you being as, as gritty as ever and studying in a library at one in the morning and just turning over a book and it just snapping into place. I wish. I'd say I have a lot of grit in that I'm very determined in the long run, but man, in the short run, run I have a lot, very little self-control. <laughs> so one in the morning only because I procrastinated and I have to. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, there was a eureka moment. I was very determined in my undergraduate. I took a year um, to do a work, work year, I guess, co-op. Um, so I was working at um, the... Uh, basically workers' compensation boards rehabilitation center for workers that had experienced injury. So I was mostly working with individuals that were experiencing chronic pain. And so with that year, you have to do kind of like a mini applied research project. And I decided that I was going to implement a mindfulness uh, kind of educational workshop for those that were attending the program. So I was very set on mindfulness. Um, towards the end of my undergraduate and then into the start of my master's. And my, um, my master's supervisor, the, the excellent Dr. John Dunn, made it very clear that my first year of my master's, I wasn't to be set on any particular research project. Like, keep your mind open. This whole year here where you're just taking classes is your opportunity to be a sponge and perhaps you'll stumble upon something new. Uh, and it was our, I was still very set on mindfulness. So I was like, Psh, nah, it's totally going to be mindfulness. This is God, that's such unbelievable advice. <laughs> I know. Great man, great man. And so our, the, last, the last day of classes, I think it was, so in April, like kind of like the last day where I was supposed to be that sponge before I started like kind of diving into the literature and putting together a research proposal. One of my classmates uh, did a presentation on Grit. Uh, and I had heard a couple, I think, podcasts where Angela Duckworth was a guest. So I kind of knew a little bit about the background of Grit. So him and I had a little bit of a dialogue uh, during his presentation. So I think my supervisor was like, oh, well, you kind of know about this. 
Um, so then I think we had a meeting like a couple, like about a month later and he was like, okay, I have an idea. And it was a very, very smart, a very elegant uh, project idea that had to do with grit. And I said, you know what? I'm kind of tired about reading about mindfulness all the time. So again, that self-control piece, very low. Uh, <laughs> tired of reading the same papers about like mindfulness, which is absolutely excellent. And I think a very big uh, tool for athletes to use uh, in their sport. But grit was just so fresh and so fun. And so I wanted to give that a spin. And now that I'm delving into it, it is such a new, um, again, not new in terms of how athletes or other folks that are in any kind of performance fields uh, achieve success, but new in terms of this only really started coming about. Angela published her first paper in 2007. Um, so I said, hey, let's do it. And I'm sticking around with it so far, but it's still integrating new things. So I get a little bit bored. <laughs> Why? Why mindfulness to start off with, and then why the switch? And have you been able to integrate the two? Yeah. Mindfulness, uh, for me, I've always been very interested um, kind of in like Buddhist approaches to life in general. Um, so mindfulness for me, like to be very, very honest, uh, I think I did a little, like a search while I was at that work term, I was like, hey, what am I gonna do this project on? And like, how can I associate, how can I like kind of set myself up for success to apply to like a sports psychology program and like have it something to do with sport, but like also I'm working with people that are experiencing chronic pain. So very different from a high performance population. So I think I just entered in like uh, chronic pain and sport into like some sort of database. Uh, a really cool paper about mindfulness in triathletes came up. So I was like, oh, this is cool. And then I kept reading, I kept diving down and I started applying the mindfulness principles into my day-to-day -day life. And that work year was very, that was a lot of stress kind of diving from school into work and kind of working with a lot of people one-on-one. -on -one. Um, I was also working with populations that had experienced like a traumatic brain injury as well as like psychological trauma on on the work site so kind of hearing their stories uh, I was learning how to compartmentalize but maybe not as quickly as I should have so bringing in mindfulness kind of really helped me attenuate uh, a lot of the emotions and the burnout that I was experiencing that year mm -hmm. uh, so that really stuck with me too and I just keep seeing it everywhere and I find it so helpful for athletes kind of to take that step and have that little bit of distance from those very, very reactive emotions that they have in the moment, take that step back, take that breath, um, and kind of see things for what they are rather than very, very reactive. Um, so that was kind of mindfulness there. So to be honest, it was just the first result that looked interesting out of a database, but after I was able to apply it and dive in a little bit more, then I, that's something that I still practice very, very frequently along with my yoga practice too. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. That's something Andre and I talked about a little bit during our podcast together was how you can manifest a behavior in yourself. And once you manifest that behavior in yourself, it becomes more valuable to other people or to bringing it towards other people. So for you, it sounds like you started off with mindfulness and more of an academic perspective, and then you brought it into a more personal perspective. And once it was, it, once it grew as from a personal perspective, then you were able to 
teach it to other people and you actually understood the benefits from a firsthand perspective rather than reading a research paper or paper and instantly and I, I find that interesting when people are able to you read a research paper and say well this is the data so we're just going to go with this whereas people who actually integrate the concept and integrate the philosophy they tend to be a lot more persuasive at the very least yeah absolutely and a big reason like that mindfulness practice and learning to have space in my life and say yes to new experiences i think was probably the biggest reason why i met yourself and andre saying yes to going to good old jvc those many years ago and mm -hmm. i think perhaps why we've all kind of remained connected all these years just again modeling that behavior and kind of connecting with like-minded individuals mm -hmm. and how did you go from mindfulness to grit so actually not not that how did you integrate mindfulness into grit and vice versa mm -hmm. i think so like i said grit is a very, very long-term perspective and isn't necessarily something that you can see in the short term. Absolutely, you engage in certain actions and behaviors in order to remain gritty over long terms, but it's not that me, if my long-term goal is to uh, run the Boston Marathon, me going out for a run one morning isn't necessarily a gritty behavior. It's the accumulation of those behaviors. So to be gritty, you have to have that determination. And in order for us to have the excellent trait of perseverance, we have to be able to come up against setbacks in our life and overcome them. So I think mindfulness is a really, really great tool in our toolkits to use. When we experience those setbacks, we have those very, very reactive emotions, whether that's I can't do this, screw this, I'm doing something else. I'm gonna just watch Netflix all day instead and bury my feelings in a tub of Ben and Jerry's. Uh, guilty, I think. Not always the worst thing you could do. Oh, no, no, no. You could go set fire to a building. I think eating a tub of ice cream is much, <laughs> much, much, much better of the two. I'll, I'll, I'll sponsor your ice cream if you ever decide the former. Perfect, we'll call the first one uh, arson. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, <laughs> Lots of definitions here today. Exactly. <laughs> I think uh, mindfulness is something that is a skill that you can use in the short term to help overcome those setbacks and again see a difficult situation for truly what it is. You know, not even though it might be a mountain, but truly seeing the mountain for what it is and maybe it is a little bit more of that molehill and then moving forward so that we can continue engaging in that long-term behavior that gets us to where we want to be. Right, okay, so just to unpack that a little bit mm -hmm. uh, from the from more of a neurochemistry perspective. The mm -hmm. dopaminergic system is based on the motivation to achieve a goal. And it tends to be that the higher, the, the the more overarching and strenuous the potential of achieving the goal, then the higher the dopamine. Mm -hmm. So by setting a high goal that's potentially out of reach for what your potential or what your current potential is, then that actually motivates us more. Mm -hmm. And we also need short-term goals and those short-term goals help us to stay motivated. So by achieving the short-term goals, we're then further able to achieve our long-term goal, which is our big overarching goal that at the moment we think that it may be out of our reach. And so 
what you're saying is that with mindfulness, you're more able to achieve and work towards those small term goals that then accumulate into your long term goal, which is essentially grit. So you're taking the mindfulness and I dislike the word biohacking, so I won't use it, but <laughs> you're you're using mindfulness to achieve long term positive re or short term positive reinforcement. And that becomes a positive feedback loop where once you get better at something, then you tend to continue to get better at that thing at an increasing rate because once you get a little bit better at something, it becomes a little bit more fun. And once yeah. something becomes fun, then it becomes easier to train that thing. And it just it's just this super fun snowball effect, positive feedback loop that you fly into it. And then by using mindfulness in the short term, you can essentially manifest grit in the long term. Yeah, that, yeah, I would say so. And even if it's not necessarily fun, even if you're having just a really crap day and you need that mindful minute or five or 60 in order to reset and I don't know, like say you're writing a paper and you just can't even bring yourself to opening up the Word document, maybe it's just like such a micro goal, it's you're opening up the Word document and maybe you end up staring at the blinking cursor for an hour or maybe you do end up in some work that mindful experience can help you kind of achieve those micro goals on a day-to-day -day basis too so whether that's that positive reinforcement or even if that's just kind of bringing you back up to average mm -hmm. i think mindfulness can work in, in both respects it's such a malleable skill to have something that i found really interesting about mindfulness and meditation in general is the research into learning bouts and ultradian rhythm so circadian meaning about a day and then all tradian meaning about 90 minutes so we tend to learn best in these 90 minute bouts and the best way to consolidate information after a 90 minute learning bout is to have a non-sleep deep rest protocol so whether that be a meditative state or whether that be laying down in your bed or laying down on the couch with your feet elevated and you set a 20 minute timer and that seems to consolidate information the best so i find that very interesting that these ancient practices are doing things that we never could have understood at the time. But now that we have literature to back it up, we're saying, wow, these are things that they definitely weren't for nothing. These things that have survived for thousands upon thousands of years, probably longer than anyone could have ever imagined. And yeah, I find that very interesting that those, those, those associate to each other. Definitely. And like a big, I'm a big supporter of light naps too. Like that's great. Totally. <laughs> I'm a oh, big fan of the the 26 minute nap. Yeah, I'm a 22er. Oh, so we're right in between. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Very good timing. <laughs> What's been the most rewarding thing about your research? The most rewarding thing, uh, two things. So one from like kind of an individual level, and then one from more of a social level. Is for me the mo the coolest moment is when you run something through like SPSS, a statistical software program, and you get like a number, or you're reading through interviews and you finally kind of dig through and discover like a really nice hearty theme in those interviews. And you can have that, that day before you like tell your lab mates or you tell your supervisor where you're like, I am the only person in the world that knows this right now. This is so cool. So that's really, really neat is, not even like writing it up, not sending it into a journal to have that manuscript approved book. It's that moment where you're like, this is 
first of its kind. It's only me. I am the purveyor of all the knowledge in this world. Just kidding. It's a tiny little blip of something. <laughs> so there's that. That's really rewarding. Um, but it doesn't happen too often. Research is slow, particularly in the, in the land of COVID. It takes a long time to get to that little nugget. But something that happens a little bit more often, but not as often as I love, because, you know, researchers love talking about their own research. I love being able to, for example, like we're having right now, have a conversation about uh, my research. Again, we love talking about our research, but more so, is there something about what I've kind of stumbled upon on what I've been reading or what I've been researching myself? that can help you. So is there something that I can share with you, some kind of knowledge that I can translate to you that might make whatever journey that you're on go a little bit smoother or a tool that I can add to your toolkit. So that's really cool too. But again, you know, no one wants to talk about research too much, so I totally get it. <laughs> well, I really enjoy talking about research, so yeah. I'm always I'm always here. Was there anything was there anything that you found that you weren't expecting? Was there anything that surprised you? Mm, good question. I think something that I have a paper that was just accepted last month that was very, very interesting and something that I, on about for about two, maybe three years, I was kind of on the trail of, um, but have yet to kind of um, understand quantitatively. Um, whether or not this hypothesis is true or not, is can you be too gritty in sport? Is there a point where grit has maladaptive outcomes and perhaps there's a dark side? And intuitively that makes sense to us, whether you're an athlete or not. Uh, I think whether it's ourselves or whether it's someone that we've known that is so stubborn about achieving some goal that they almost have tunnel vision, uh, and at the end of it all, they're not able to achieve that goal. So either, you know, on the lesser extent in terms of how bad the outcome is, they've wasted their time, or perhaps because they aren't able to achieve that goal, there's some sort of emotional uh, spiral afterwards. In sports, I think that can go even further uh, because athletes are pushing, they're putting their bodies on the line every single day. They're putting their minds on the line every single day. So if they're to be really, really gritty about some sort of goal and not achieve it, there might be even more of an outcome of, say, injury. Uh, again, long-term exit from the sport, not able to return. Um, so what was surprising in that, I, did, I conducted a couple interviews last year. I recently did a review on all of the literature in the sport kind of bubble uh, that looked at grit in sport. And I, after the review, I went to six varsity level coaches here at the University of Saskatchewan. And I kinda, it's kind of a way to give important stakeholders a look into what your results were and have them either point out things that were really interesting, things that they disagree with, or holes, like stuff that they really wanna know that doesn't exist yet. And they, I kept on getting this theme from coaches was, you know what, I don't think you can have too gritty of an athlete, or I've really only encountered one athlete that perhaps you would define as too gritty, um, but at the end of the day, it's really, really rare. So I thought that was really interesting how all of these coaches kind of came up against that, that big hypothesis that I had was that you can be too gritty, we gotta avoid 
giving athletes too much power. Uh, <laughs> so I think that was really, really surprising, but I've yet to quantitatively test that. Interesting. Is there anything that you found that you didn't like? I find the most convincing research that I look through is when a researcher is looking for one thing and they find something else that is the opposite of what they hypothesized and then they have to come to grips with it. It's like tearing down an axiom of what they believed and having to go back on it. So the best example I can think of is Darwin. Mm -hmm. uh, a religious man goes across the world and finds a bunch of buried animals that shouldn't be on in North America or are no longer in North America and then has to over time come to terms with this idea of evolution and that things were not we weren't created in the in Genesis by an omniscient being so mm -hmm. he had to come to terms with that which I find interesting and that's I, I find that those those ideas that type of research is the most convincing to me because the person is actually working against what they come up against and then the the reality of what they realize is stronger than their preconceived biases. Absolutely. I can't say that I've had such a big worldview shift as Darwin. Really? Are you sure? Not, I'm sure that's coming. Like, give yeah. it two more years and we'll, we'll chat again. But I think the most interesting thing that we've already touched on uh, is that grit might not actually be uh, something that's worth studying because there's already um, terms or concepts out there that are already looking at those outcomes that those behaviors. So, for example, conscientiousness. Right. The biggest critique of grit is that, like I was saying, it's uh, old wine in a new bottle. The old wine being the big five, like probably one of the most highly cited papers in the field of, of personality research, personality psychology, is that big five questionnaire in conscientiousness. And then grit is this really cool looking butt wine bottle with a screw top. So you know that it's like very, you know, very modern. Mm -hmm. um, so what I kept finding again in that, in that review that I did was, again, a lot of re sport researchers that still have those questions, which to me is a little stressful because I'm kind of hanging my hat on this thing. Um, but what I'm hoping to do in my next research study is um, plug in and ask um, a bunch of athletes, get them to complete questionnaires of these already existing terms of these already existing concepts and compare them against grit and see, okay, which one is the best, which one predicts has the most predictability the predicts the most variance in positive outcomes like well-being or performance mm -hmm. so those terms those concepts being of course conscientiousness uh hardiness um there's a separate kind of perseverance scale and mental toughness mm -hmm. interesting mm -hmm. so i'm when you started to be asked questions like that why not conscientiousness why not why not just stick with conscientiousness why not do this why did you still hover towards grit what's the what's the magnet and grit that attracts you mm -hmm. and i still get asked uh, i was at a conference last week and i got asked that question after i gave my presentation so it's fairly constant which is okay and i right now it's because there's no definitive proof just yet in the domain of sport i think there's a little bit more evidence existing kind of in the general literature mm -hmm. um a lot of 
great research has been done with uh, education, so whether that's younger kids or university populations and how they approach their academic pursuits. I wonder if grit in sport perhaps acts a little bit differently than in other domains because grit is so important. Again, sport is something that you're, maybe you're doing two a day, so maybe you have two practices, maybe you have uh, like a lift session in between, multiple instances in a day where you have to battle your mind, battle your brain, battle your body in order to persevere and hit that long-term goal. So I, I wonder if grit in sport just has a little bit more importance, a little bit more weight to it than perhaps in other domains. Mm -hmm. so that's, that's very interesting. Right, now. Yeah. right. No, that's very interesting. I think that because you're right, sport is a little bit of a different domain and maybe conscientiousness could be a broader term and grit could be something that could be more, more conducive to the description of individuals in sport. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. interesting stuff. Are you at all familiar with the uh, Carol Dweck growth mindset literature? Oh, girl, love me some growth mindset. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So growth mindset is another kind of area of interest for me. Um, one of the very few, again, another critique of grit is that there's very few effective interventions. And growth mindset seems to be one of the very few. Mm -hmm. want to go... What is your what is your approach to growth mindset? What is your definition of it? Uh, right. So the simplest way I could put it would be growth versus fixed mindset. Number one, that's the that's the dichotomy that you're dealing with, and it's less of a dichotomy. People find themselves within the dichotomy, but it's obviously a spectrum. And growth mindset being the belief that one is able to improve on their current abilities. No ability is necessarily innate in the sense that it can't be improved upon. Mm -hmm. And fixed mindset being, we are the way that we are. Nothing can change us. We live in a deterministic world to the utmost degree. And nothing that we do can interfere with that. So if you're bad at math, then you're bad at math. If you can't read, you can't read. If, you're, if you don't have a green thumb, you're never going to get that garden going. So those are my, that, that's the way that I see growth mindset and I was it, it's interesting because the literature on by Carol Dweck is so new but I've been exposed to it for so long because of being in athletics that I just thought it was totally common knowledge and it differs from the personality traits within conscientiousness and grit growth mindset is something a little bit outside of those and I would say that maybe they have an interplay relationship between them where the grittier you are, potentially the higher your growth mindset belief is. But I also believe that there's a, to, to stack those two on top of each other, to be in a growth mindset while also being gritty or conscientious, then that has, that, that has um, exponential returns. Because if you believe that you can get good at something and you're already good at working towards something, then that you're just going to, you're going to get so good at something so fast, it's going to make your head spin. Mm -hmm. So I found that the, and it, it's just a way of thinking too, right? It's not, yeah. it's not something not that's, that. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I heard this a while ago, but it was, uh, I forget which old, I think it was Alexander the Great maybe, but he could read without speaking, without mouthing the words. He could just read in his head. 
and people thought that that was magic. And it's uh, things like those are. It's just once you understand that something is possible, then it changes your whole perspective of reality. And I had a friend that read Mindset by Carol Dweck. I think it's called Mindset. I believe it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she she had read Mindset and it totally changed her perspective on everything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely changed everything. And I'm I, I really like the the mechanics of of neuroscience and neurobiology and neurochemistry. So this is a much more of a practical approach towards the the mindset idea. It's not, it doesn't talk about what's happening in your brain, but it talks about the behaviors that you display and how that impacts the the returns on your learning. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's unbelievably cool, unbelievably interesting. And the fact that just telling people that you can get better at something completely changes their perspective and the way that they look at the world. Absolutely. You can get better at something and as well, failure is an opportunity for learning. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, one of the biggest, the trickiest things for us as human beings, one of our biggest flaws as human beings is that a phrase that I hear all the time and it's been known to come out of my mouth too is, oh, I'm not very good at that, so I'm not going to try. Which is just so boring. That's such a boring approach to life. Um, like refusing to engage in a new experience just because you think you have an idea that you're going to be bad at it and you don't want to embarrass yourself. Mm-hmm. It's so boring and it limits yourself so much. So an opportunity to learn from failure um, and instead of kind of like blacking it out or blacking out something that you, you failed at or you just didn't perform as well as you want limits you from learning so much. Because I think you, while you do learn from a win or from a success, you don't learn as much mm-hmm. so that learning from failure, I think is a really interesting component of that growth mindset too. Mm-hmm. Well, failure turns out to be the only way that we actually do learn how to do anything. We, we have to learn and then as, or we have to fail, sorry. And as you fail, you get better and better at approximating the behavior that you're looking for. So I'm, I'm trained, I have five dogs and I'm training them all to do very random things. And so I'm teaching them how to, roll over and sit down and they're very, they were very poorly behaved dogs. So they're all learning how to sit down and lay down and roll over, play dead, jump through my arms, like a, like a circus dog and all those things. And the way that I do that is just from a strictly behaviorist perspective. I just go straight back to Skinner and because that's the, that that's the, the most base layer you can get for learning is the behaviorist perspective. And I know that they maybe set us back about, 40 or 50 years on what psychology could have been, but he did it with dogs. So yeah, great uh, base to start from. (laughs) Yeah. And what Skinner found was that he could, you could train a rat to do an unbelievably complex system of actions just by waiting until they did something that was closer to what you wanted them to do. And then positively reinforcing them for that thing. Mm -hmm. So with the dogs, I, I pretty much, I'm actually training my, my oldest dog, I didn't want to train him because I love him so much and he loves food. And so I always felt bad oh. <laughs> not giving him food right away. And yeah. what he's, he's deaf and blind. And yeah. so I can't give him any actions or sounds. And so all I do is I just, I'd sit there in. Oh. So he has, he has a little room that he eats in. So that none of the other dogs, cause he gets really good food cause he has heart issues. Mm-hmm. And so we have him on a, on a keto diet mm-hmm. and I, I sit down on a little dog bed and I wait for him to come 
and sit with me. And then now I'm waiting for him to lay down. So now he lays down and now I'm going to get him to roll over. And I'm trying to do all of it from just behaviorism. No, there's no action by me. There's no relationship between us besides me sitting there. And so the first time that I did it, I sat in a room for about 30 to 45 minutes waiting for him to come and lay down. And then I gave him food and then I just continued that process. But over time, it's so interesting to watch because he fails and fails. Anything that he does outside of the behavior that I'm trying to get him to do is failure. Mm -hmm. And then as he gets closer to doing that behavior, he's approximating success. So the closer he approximates success, then the closer he gets to positive reinforcement. So in that same way, anything that we do outside of the successful behavior is failure. And so we're failing all the time and we're successful a very small portion of the time. And it's interesting because once you actually succeed at something, then there's immediately another step. So in terms of grit, you're gritty up until you achieve your goal. And once you've achieved your goal, then there's a whole other goal that you have to be gritty towards. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I love the method with your dog. It's basically like the scientific method of hot and cold, like mm-hmm. not cold, yeah. dude, cold, oh, warmer, yeah. <laughs> warmer. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. He's fun. He's a fun little guy. <laughs> on, on that note a little bit as well, right? Maybe they're unrelated, but I relate them in my minds. I heard you give a really interesting talk a few years ago at a pursuit folly camp on the inverted view of athletic performance. And I was wondering if you could discuss that a little bit, because I think that that's something that the anxiety of failure is something that not only hinders us, but also enables us to perform at our best when our best is needed. Yeah. And that was something that I thought you articulated quite well. Yeah, absolutely. The inverted U of performance. So I'm going to try and draw it out here. Uh, Let's say on our vertical axis, we have level of performance so how are we performing at the very bottom of that axis uh we're choking or we're not doing anything at all we're just sitting on the ground let's say and at the very top of that axis like oh my gosh you're giving me like the best performance of your life you're never going to perform any better than you're doing right now on the horizontal axis we have perceived um we in our field we say arousal in terms of stress um so perceived arousal on the very lowest end you're not feeling a single thing you are numb to the world perhaps you're asleep and on the very high end of the axis uh we have ultimate amounts of anxiety you are in a in a panic attack perhaps calling 911 is your next step so that inverted you uh so imagine an upside down you in your mind uh where how our perform anxiety affects our performance is perhaps a little bit um, just not how we expect. I always like to lead any kind of talk that I'm giving about stress with a very, very rude and like black and white question. And then I always give like the secret third like option of like, okay guys, uh, is stress a good or a bad thing? And I say, okay, raise your hands if it's good. And raise your hand if it's bad and everyone's like oh it's very simplistic and then i say okay secret third option c it's a little bit of both and everyone like groans and says the worst um <laughs> but what we found again um kind of in my domain of sport is that we need a little bit of stress to get us going like i said 
on that very end of that perceived arousal axis on the horizontal, having no stress, perhaps we're still asleep. So there's nothing in our lives at that moment that's motivating us to get out of bed. Um, not even the sweet, sweet smell of coffee is like motivating you to get moving. That's not a good thing. We need to have at least a purpose or at least a goal in our mind that day, that moment, in order to kind of get us moving up that arousal chain. As we kind of hit the middle, that really nice sweet spot, the highest peak of the U, we're experiencing that Goldilocks zone of stress of arousal. That's when our performance is the highest. So again, we're in that sweet spot. But the key to that sweet spot is that it varies person per person. And particularly on teams, you have to be very cognizant. So you have to be aware of where that sweet spot is, not only for yourself, but for your teammates or for other folks on your team, whether that's uh, a project at school or any other kind of team that you can think of in that, at least in my domain of sport, you often have like a group of teammates right before a game, like all in a circle, like screaming in each other's faces, trying to amp each other up. And the harm in that is you might have a couple teammates in there where their sweet spot is much lower than that screaming in your face, rapping along to a Drake song point that others might be at. They prefer to sit, uh, perhaps in silence, perhaps listening to music that's a little bit more chill, uh, perhaps engaging in mindfulness techniques. And that is their sweet spot there. And they aim to stay in there for the entirety of their performance. So that's what's very important there. And then of course, as we go up into that high anxiety range, you and I both know that when we are so stuck in our mind, so stuck in a negative feedback loop, we're ruminating, all of that energy, all of that attention is going on what's going on in our mind, what's going on in between our two ears, and we're not able to give any other attention to what's going on to the environment around us. Thus, it's very, very difficult to, let alone compete at our high highest uh, possible abilities, let alone compete at all. So that's kind of the thing there is that we need a little bit of stress, if not a lot of stress for some of us. I know I operate best when I'm under a crunch, under a deadline. Perhaps that's the reason why I'm a big procrastinator. Perhaps that's why I'm a bit of a perfectionist, but we'll get into that on, the other, on another talk. We'll need a few <laughs> hours. Now, whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then two is that, that that sweet spot depends on the person. So you have to be aware of that. And if you want your entire team to operate at its highest potential, try to create little pockets, little areas for each of their teammates to find their, their Goldilocks zone, their sweet spot. Mm -hmm. I'm very curious, do you operate better under low stress, high stress, right in the middle? I'd say somewhere in the middle. So mm -hmm. something something I find really interesting that you mentioned about mindfulness is that being, being mindful, I think is different from being meditative. So I would say that mindfulness is a precursor to a meditative state. So you can be in a, in a meditative state while you're playing a sport. You can be in a meditative state while you're writing. You can be in a meditative state while you're painting, doing art, surfing, running, all of those things can induce a meditative state where you're, very present, very in the moment. And so I think that mindfulness is the precursor towards that meditative state and being able to understand what you need to get to that meditative state. What, what are the, 
what are the environmental factors that come into play and then what are the internal factors that come into play so mm. something that i've realized in coaching and playing and generally just doing things and trying to be in a constant state of meditation and you learn how to walk and meditate and that's kind of the 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 buddha bodhisattva idea of meditation is that you're constantly in this meditative state and moving from place to place present in the moment nowhere else there's no desire to be elsewhere and a part of mindfulness that can help you to get there is by understanding what gets you to a meditative space and you can do that through mindfulness so something that i realized while i was playing was if I wasn't in the mindful, if I wasn't in a meditative or a flow state, I was thinking, am I over aroused or under aroused? And then from there, kind of as the behaviorist perspective we we're talking about, then you're able to approximate what you need to do to actually get there. And so something that I found very helpful were breathing techniques. So a few that I found was one was tumo breathing, which is an, an ancient Tibetan breathing technique is where you're your lungs are very full and you're breathing very shallow. So it's, it's similar to this. I'll try to get as close as I can. So you're breathing in through your nose and you're. And that's actually activating your autonomic nervous system. So you're increasing the amount of cortisol because there's also a, there's a synergistic relationship between cortisol and dopamine. And I had a conversation about a week ago about drug addiction with my friend Owen. And we talked about that synergistic relationship being out of cue for people that are drug addicts so a lot of the time they're trying to reinstate that homeostatic that homeostatic area for them and so by increasing cortisol you're increasing your arousal level now i'm now i'm now i'm all aroused and <laughs> so and then a way to a way to move the other way is a different breathing technique where you take two sharp inhales and one long exhale so it sounds like this And so that's a way that I, so even when I'm doing my, my podcast with people, if I find that I'm drifting elsewhere or I'm too focused, too wired on one thing, then I'll, I'll be practicing those in the background. So I'm sure on, exactly. I'm sure on occasion people can hear me and they're like, I hope he's okay. <laughs> so those are things that I find that help to, to, to find that consistent meditative state, finding that area of understanding that the, that, that that area exists of optimal athletic and not even athletic, but optimal life performance, that area exists. And to be able to find that more consistently and more consistently, that's something that people should be striving towards. And I think that mindfulness is perhaps the best way to find that in, in that being present and understanding your internal environment is probably the best way to find a way that you can actually exit your internal environment and just allow for your, your body to take over completely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, can I have, can I offer an alternate perspective? Jump, jump, jump. I think that flow states, that's what we're discussing there, where everything feels so, like, so good. Whatever the demands of this, of the environment, of the situation that you're in, matches your ability perfectly. And you have this beautiful tunnel vision where you feel, I'm a big Harry Potter nerd, so you feel like you've taken that Felis felicitous oh god now i didn't even pronounce it right um where like everything is going perfectly and you feel excellent so that that flow state that we all strive for because it feels so good but i would say in sport and sometimes and in life too whenever we're acquiring kind of a new skill that flow state is what we want to strive for at the end so 
when we're giving that kind of performance, mm -hmm. we want to feel like we're in control of the scenario, whether we're a musician and we're performing in front of a crowd, we've kind of mastered that, that fear of crowds of performing. We feel like we're in total control. But when we're practicing, when we're learning a skill, we almost want to avoid feeling comfortable. We want to engage in something called deliberate practice where we're always performing, we're always working a little bit past our realm, our comfort zone, our realm of ability. We're working towards a very, very specific goal for that session. And we're engaging in that for long enough of time that we're actually consolidating that, that skill. And deliberate practice does not feel good. It feels pretty awful. Mm -hmm. We're constantly butting up against failure. We're butting up against our own abilities. Um, and kind of our mind is screaming for us to put down the instrument, put down the paintbrush, put down whatever that tool is and walk away. So I, I always think there's kind of two minds in terms of practice and then performance and that in practice, we need to strive towards that failure point so that we can engage in that growth mindset afterwards. But then when it comes time for the performance, we are no longer trying to acquire new skills. We need to get into that meditative state into that flow state so that we feel like we're in full control and we are able to experience that kind of euphoria moment. And I think it's important to distinguish between the two. Absolutely. Yeah. You definitely painted the other side of the coin perfectly. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think I could put it very much better myself. Yeah. You need to, during practice as, as a coach, as an athlete, you should be actually pushing your athletes to failure, mm -hmm. which I think is something that's interesting in the, I'd say almost all athletic climate is that coaches want success all the time. And something that I strive for in my athletes is pushing them to fail almost, I'd, I'd say more than half the time. I actually try to, I, I did a lecture a while ago and I was talking about the, the idea of psychological development from the, I, I try to take more of a naturalist perspective. So I talk about it as a tree. And so the canopy of the tree is our, our conscious comfort zone. And then the role of the canopy is to push water to the outskirts so that our root system can grow outwards past the canopy. And then once the root system grows outwards, then that more consolidates the, the stability of the tree. And then that allows for the canopy to grow outwards more. So it's constantly this idea of moving, allocating resources towards the unconscious and then once the unconscious is able to integrate that, then it allows for growth outside. So that would kind of be the, the difference between the root system or the unconscious would be something you're trying to develop in practice. And then in a performance setting, you're trying to maintain the canopy and expand the canopy so that you're, you're able to, to that, that's the idea of optimal performance is that you're not really going outside of what you are, but you're just doing the things that you know to do so well. And something that we, something that lots of people do in sport is trying to attain perfection in practice and in games where especially volleyball is just a game of errors. Every single movement could be defined as an error, whether you're not in the right place or uh, yeah, that could be it. You're just not in the right place. Someone hits over top of you and you didn't jump high enough. Someone wasn't in the right place for defense. You should always be reading the game, all of these things. So it's interesting that the, I think failure is, now becoming more of an appropriate topic in sport, whereas before it was the striving for perfection at all times. So I think you, I think you described the, the, the difference between those two things really well. I think that there's definitely a mindset for practice and there's definitely a mindset for 
competition and being your best when your best is needed. Yeah, and I love that that tree canopy analogy and that also too the canopy is what's visible and mm -hmm. that's you know what's being shown off in front of spectators in front of fans whereas that enormous root system underneath the ground that's invisible that's only what's seen perhaps with what your coach and your teammates but even just you for something that's a little bit more private maybe that's the mental work that you're doing behind closed doors um and it's not something that you can show off but that's that's integral because as soon as you have a setback, let's say you have a really windy day, if you don't have that invisible root system set up, you're gonna get blown over. Mm -hmm. um, it's not glamorous, it's not pretty. It's sometimes even, I think a term you and I both know is training ugly. Yeah. It doesn't feel good, um, but that root system is what keeps you afloat, keeps you standing. Right, something I, the, the place where I came up with the analogy was I went to somewhere it's called the biosphere two down here in Phoenix and the biosphere being the earth. And then the biosphere two was a, it was a project taken on by NASA, I believe. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they built this giant dome. It kind of looked like the Epcot center and they sent people in there to live for a year. And something they found was that the tree started to fall over. And a part of that was because there was no wind so there was no you could term it as adversity there was no adversity shaking the tree and wind is actually something that i, I think now it's you could I, I would say this hypothesis but i'm sure it could be tested that wind is something that initiates a signal for root growth mm -hmm. so it promotes roots to grow down deeper and stronger and just grab on tighter so if you don't have that adversity that wind pushing back and forth then your roots don't grow out as far. And also with watering, so we have a few citrus trees here that I'm very specific about the way that we water them because if you water them at the base, then it doesn't promote the roots to grow outwards. So you actually want to water around where the canopy actually is. Mm -hmm. So that promotes it to grow outwards. And if you, any, any of the trees that you see that come out of the ground, you can, you can probably predict if they're planted by people, you can probably predict that the, the the watering system is only underneath the canopy. Mm -hmm. So you have this watering system that's a pretty much an oil drummer of that's where the water is going. So the root doesn't have to stretch outwards at all. So I think that's an interesting comparison to adversity as well and how adversity actually, adversity, that failure, that actually creates a proclivity for growth and it creates mm -hmm. the environment for growth. Mm -hmm. We cannot become the very definition of perseverance is that you have to come up against some sort of adversity, some sort of setback, and then return to either your levels, whatever that might be, before the incident or even better than before the incident. But there has to be a setback at the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, so I think in order for us to become more perseverant, we have to come up against those setback experiences. But that's not to say that we need to come out of that or go through that alone. I think mm -hmm. that support system, uh, the rest of the forest, the rest of that ecosystem, um, the support system around us is so important to help us move through those adversity experiences. Um, and it's much more difficult to move through a setback alone than it is with other people, with trusted friends, with coaches, with parents, etc. Right, well, bamboo does that. It's so cool to see bamboo. It grows outwards and down mm -hmm. so that so what'll happen with bamboo is if a branch breaks off, it comes into the ground and then the root system will grow. Mm -hmm. And 
the roots will grow outwards and then they'll start to shoot up and that's how you get bamboo shoots. Mm -hmm. And the part of that is a bamboo forest will be this unbelievably complex grid in that they're growing over top and underneath one another. And that's that community that you're talking about is that they're holding each other in place. And if one starts to, to stray or stress, then other ones are there to hold down the roots on the other side of it and keep it there. It's very, very cool to see. Beautiful. So we should all strive to be like bamboo. Bamboo and deep-rooted trees. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you uh, hinted at it a little bit, and I want to dive into it. What's your experience with grit being someone that procrastinates and waits till the last second, but is also unbelievably successful in terms of academia, being able to even move towards a, a PhD is a very impressive feat. No. Well, thank you, Josh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you just need grit. Exactly. You just need grit. Or like large amounts of money. Um, <laughs> that too. No, me with grit, like I said, I was a strange kid, uh, but I had a goal to study sports psychology from the get. Um, and so for me, particularly this past year with COVID, uh, I think like perhaps many of us, or maybe I'm just projecting, like I had a major breakdown where I think I was on the floor of my living room and my partner was with me. And I just said like, I should just go to med school. Like at least you come out of it and you have like a very clear idea of like what it's gonna look like. So fast forward to now, I'm better, don't worry about me. Um, but that that dream of, of studying sports psychology and going on, getting my PhD, doing whatever postdoc I have to do to get that faculty position, hopefully one day is the goal, um, has been, yeah, fairly unwavering aside from that one moment. And I think that that goal and how I like to describe goal progression is almost kind of like, it's called a goal hierarchy, but I like to see, think of it as like a Christmas tree in that you have your lower level goals, on the bottom, maybe those are micro goals, goals that you achieve every day. And then you move up to like, this is my goal for the week. This is my goal for the month. This is my goal for the next decade. And at the very top of your Christmas tree, you have a goal that's perhaps a little bit more abstract, a little bit more nebulous, and maybe isn't necessarily something you're ever going to be able to fully achieve in your lifetime. It's not the answer to what do I want to be when I grow up, but it's what do I want to give to this world? And so mine is kind of like what you said at the beginning there in my intro is my goal is to be able to help athletes focus on their strengths rather than their weaknesses in sport. And the thing with that top order goal, that star on my Christmas tree, is that there's so many ways to be able to do that. So there is room for flexibility. But the path that I'm on right now is hey, I want to be a professor one day. So that kind of, that guiding star, that North Star has kind of always been with me, like I said, since I was young. Um, so I think that's so important, particularly in academia where a lot of it uh, is left up to other people. So unfortunately, it's very much a numbers game. Um, publisher perish, and you could just write a paper about a topic like grips that other academics doesn't, don't believe is a thing. So they reject your paper and thus you don't have that metric to put onto your CV. Um, 
So you have to have that kind of guiding, that guiding North Star in order to keep going. So that's kind of been my experience uh, with grit and kind of my path. It's interesting that you mentioned the, 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 the breakdown being your step where you said, well, maybe this isn't it because Matthew Primrose and I had a conversation about a week ago now, and he was explaining he was explaining his relationship with volleyball mm-hmm. and volleyball being this thing that he he really like he wants to become professional that's his goal, and so there are also parts of him that say, "Well, maybe this isn't it mm-hmm. and I liken that to a relationship in that when you have a partner, it's someone that you're it's, a, it's someone that you commit to and your commitment to them supersedes what might come in the future. That's the, I, I would say that's maybe the ideal of having a partner. You're not just waiting for the next better partner to come along and, and you actually have to reject notions of those when they do come along because you've committed to this current partner and there's this consistent ebb and flow of how committed you are to the thing and where you feel that you're, efforts could be potentially more valuable elsewhere. And could you, could you talk about that a little bit and how grit relates into that as well? Because I think that that's something that I just don't, I, I don't really hear that spoken about, particularly in the, the partner perspective. I think that now more and more people are more hesitant to get in to relationships because of, uh, and, or they're more likely to maybe leave relationships. I would say that I would compare that to the, the marriage epidemic that we're facing of divorce and how it seems to be more commonplace and socially acceptable for people to get divorced mm-hmm. because there's, there's something better. There's something else out there. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you, you already kind of spoke to it was what is the temporality that you're seeing this, this relationship in? Are you looking at it in the short term? Because if you're looking at it in the short term, there's a million other options out there that are probably better than the one presented to you in the moment. And also if you're looking and pondering it in the short term, it's probably because something has gone wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're in a fight. And of course, every other option out there looks like it's like it's better than the one you're currently in. But again, if you're looking for someone in the long term and myself and my partner have been together for about six years now, that long-term piece, how does it align with those long-term, how does your relationship align with your long-term goals? How can your long-term goals uh, get better by partnering with this person? How is it more likely for you to achieve these long-term goals? I think puts things in a better perspective, one that you can uh, judge a little bit with a little bit more of a mindful approach, a little bit more of a realistic approach. Um, because again, that self-control, that kind of in the moment um, approach, particularly for something like a relationship, I don't think does the complexity of that relationship justice. There has to be some knitting together in the long term, um, I think, to, to be have a gritty relationship, to have that that grit in that particular domain. Right. Well, I think, I think you said something that perfectly encapsulated the idea and that it being easier to look elsewhere in the moment, mm-hmm. especially when you're in a fighter, there's a, there's some kind of decrease in the quality of the relationship. It's, it might not be the relationship is doomed, but it might be that 
it's something that you have to work on with the person and yourself, which is incredibly difficult because to do that is to admit that maybe you're wrong about something or maybe they're wrong about something or maybe there's something to work on. And I think that relationships do a good job at that is illuminating the things that we could do better by viewing our partner as in an idealistic lens. And then also when we don't live up to that idealistic manifestation, then that gives us a little hint as to where we could potentially be better. Mm -hmm. I agree. Okay, one last thing that I want to round off on is you, you mentioned it a few uh, monologues ago. <laughs> the idea of focusing on what someone is good at compared to focusing on what someone is bad at. Could you talk about that a little bit? And I'd like to dive in and potentially play the other side of the coin on that. Love that. Good. So my most favorite approach to psychology is with the positive psychology lens. And that approach... Like is, Carl Rogers? Uh, I'm a little bit, and I really like Martin Seligman's approach to it as well, too. Okay, yeah. Um, I suppose kind of the main tenet of that approach is that the focus is on human flourishing. Mm -hmm. The focus is on helping humans get better at whatever it is that they are already good at and focusing on enhancing those strengths rather than perhaps more of like a prescriptive or a normal psychology viewpoint where we're trying to take weaknesses and again abnormalities up to kind of the average level. Not to say that that isn't important and that those weaknesses or those abnormalities can't be supplemented with medication or therapy, whatever that might be. Um, but in the domain of sport, where my main goal as say a performance consultant is to push someone that is already very good at something, let's say 98% good at something up to a 99 or even a hundred. I find that that flourishing, that that positive psychology spin uh, helps me get to where I need to go. And so I find, again, it's very liberating for athletes. I think kind of the old school approach to sports and performance psychology has been focused on kind of getting those weaknesses up to average. And I think it's just a, a fresh take on, on that approach for athletes to say, hey, you know what? These are the things that I'm good at. And maybe I'll focus on these for once. I recall, I think I was down in Calgary uh, with, a, with a volleyball workshop with Pursuit. There were maybe about 40, 50 athletes there. And I asked the group, okay, uh, I want you kind of as like a really quick warm, like icebreaker. Can you list your greatest weakness and your greatest strength of the group? One word each and then move on. Because the tendency is kind of give an explanation. I think that's for some reason, almost like a knee-jerk reaction, like, I'm great at math because this. And then often the explanation, you attribute that strength to other people. No one ever wants to take on this for their strengths or weaknesses. Um, and then I, so we did that. And then afterwards, I got them to raise their hands. Okay, who was able to come up with their strength really, really quickly? And no one put up their hand. And then I asked, okay, who was able to come up with their weakness really, really quickly? And everyone put up their hand. Like, it was very black and white. Um, and I think in the domain of sport, a lot of coaches focus on weaknesses. And they call out weaknesses. Um, and I just think it's a very fresh take to perhaps focus on strengths instead. 
And I think there's a little bit more of an effect on overall well-being for the athlete when taking that approach. Not to say that there isn't a time and place to, to work on those weaknesses as well. Mm -hmm. Something that we did at TRU was to, during games, we would focus on our strengths. So I was, uh, I was really good at blocking and serving. And so that was something that I always focused on to get me into a game. And then once I was in a game, that's how I entered my flow state was by focusing on my strengths. And then in practice, we would focus on our weaknesses. Mm -hmm. So I guess going back to that idea of mindfulness versus meditative state and what you're going for in practice versus a game is that in a game, you might be looking to acknowledge what someone's doing well and help to build them up into the, their optimal athletic performance. And then when you're in practice, then you're looking to actually build someone's weaknesses. And the only, the only reason I asked about that was because there was a, there was research by a, her name was Carol Gilligan. And she was, a, she was, she was looking into confidence. She was actually looking into the academics of young girls in the late 1990s. And she went in and found that there was a point at which there was a point at which the confidence of girls nosedove mm -hmm. and and then that that sparked a, a lot of different uh you maybe call them up there were modules to increase confidence in young girls and over and then it was uh it was she was she was looking at it from the dichotomy of boys are confident young girls are not confident and so there must be something happening in the schooling system that is now making girls unconfident and when people went in later they found well both boys and girls lose their confidence at this age it's something that's consistent and so mm -hmm. i would say that maybe from a psychoanalytic perspective it's the realization that you're not perfect and you start to look around and see other people and you have a, a theory of mind moment where you go oh that person's really good at this and that person's really good at this and I'm not really good at this. And then that impacts your confidence. And so what we've found to best work on confidence is not to tell people that they are good at stuff, but for them to, but to teach them skills. So confidence is built by the acquisition and learning of skills and of knowledge. So you become more confident, the more that you actually do something rather than someone telling, rather than someone coming in and saying, Hey, you're really good at this thing it was actually more beneficial for someone to come in and say, maybe you're not very good at this thing, but you can get very good at this thing. Going back to the Carol Dweck growth mindset, and you can get good at this thing. So let's work on this thing. And then working on that thing with the preconceived notion that by working on it, you will get better at it. And that's what increased confidence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think something to note of that, I think there, we could call it like a movement, that self-confidence movement and that, most stereotypical outcome of that self-confidence movement in schools was the, the introduction of the participation ribbon. Right. And I think <laughs> amongst, but that's, I think, perhaps uh, the most stereotypical outcome, whereas there were definitely positive things. But mm -hmm. I think, too, uh, with what I'm looking at now in my PhD, in addition to, comp, comp, in addition to grit, uh, is the weaving together of self-confidence with self-compassion. Because as you were saying there, that confidence piece is contingent on referencing where other people are at. 
I'm going to rank myself in a particular skill, let's say math, in comparison to little Tommy and Susie. And uh, they got much better grades than I did. I only got a 70, they got an 80 and a 90. Thus, my self-confidence is going to tank. And if we weave together that self-confidence with self-compassion, which is a combination of mindfulness, uh, self-kindness, and common humanity, that unwavering self-kindness that you as a human being are deserving of love and of success and of happiness, no matter what it is, the outcome that you just experienced, no matter the setback, then we kind of weave those two skills together and recreate human beings that are able to go through negative, through setbacks, uh, through failures, and able to come out successfully on the other side. Uh, and continue to be gritty, continue to be persistent, because we have that self-compassion, that mindfulness piece too, that we already talked about, to get us through that negative incident. So I think, yeah, that, that self-confidence piece is so, so interesting how you bring that up, because I think we need to weave that together now with a little bit of self-compassion as well too. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think you put that very well. I, I, was, I was reading about Jungian personality and so the Myers-Briggs was created on a, after, so Myers-Briggs was a, a daughter-mother team-up and the mother was obsessed with Jungian personality psychology. And something that Jung believed was that there's a, so for, it, it's, it's so weird that I, I have to think about get, getting in trouble with this, but it's, it, it's interesting. Um, so, so Jung believed that there was a, a feminine and a masculine aspect to people. And for men, it was the, the feminine was the unconscious or the anima. And for females, it was the animus or the male unconscious. And the role of the anima for, I'll just go off of, because I'm a male. So I actually, I actually think that I'm more feminine than I am masculine. So mine would be the animus. And that would be the, the integration of the unconscious is the role of the anima. And so with, with personality psychology, now we understand that men and women actually do differ in, in personality a little bit. It's not a lot, but it's a little bit. And so those differences you could say are our, our lifelong goal is to integrate the other side of mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm -hmm. And something that I heard from a friend that's in, he's, he's in sales and he said that the, women between their 30s and 40s tend to be the best salespeople. Yeah. And I would hypothesize that that's because they're, they're agreeable and they're agreeable naturally and they've learned to be disagreeable over time by being in that business. And so that's something that they've integrated into themselves. So by being, so, so I, I guess that's the, that's the main idea. I'm trying to more or less step around it because I, I think that people are not, not, very happy about the idea that men are men and women are different, mm -hmm. but the, the whole idea is to integrate the other side of yourself into yourself or the other side of what you could be into yourself to attain wholeness. Yeah, absolutely. And instead of blocking something out again, a very much of a mindful principle, instead of trying to stamp something down or block it out, recognizing that it exists, and moving forward with that knowledge. Mm -hmm. 
Cool. I think that that's a, I think that's a good place to stop unless you actually, uh, what are you doing next? What's next for you? What am I doing next? I am wrapping up my PhD. So I have about, I have two more years of funding. So if I don't finish in two years, then I'm out on the streets, but uh, <laughs> so two more years, hopefully. And then uh, I'll do as many postdocs as I need to do. I'll probably be moving around. Um, the country, maybe Australia, we've been looking into as well. The UK would be very neat too. Um, to do those postdocs, get some more experience, and then hopefully you see me on a faculty website one day. That's the dream, to get a job at a university. I hope so. And in the meantime, where else can people find you if they're looking to indulge in your mind? Yeah, you can find me. I'm just diving into the world of website creation so you can follow me at uh, or find me at uh, flourishmentalperformance.com um, you can find me there otherwise i have all my social media you can find me on twitter all that jazz i don't even know my handles off the top of my head so <laughs> well i'll put them in the just, just in the bio yeah i'll put them in the bio so that people can get there right away perfect beautiful all right danielle thank you so much i had a i had a great time during this this was yeah I learned a lot. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for catching up, Josh. It's yeah. nice seeing you and again, connecting with people over a platform that we didn't even knew existed a year and a half ago. Exactly. It's amazing. Truly. All right. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too.